Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. And I'm John Lovett. Wow. <laughs> um, Wild. Today on the pod, uh, we have our 4th of July mailbag episode where we're going to answer some of your most burning questions about all the topics of the day. And later in the show, uh, stick around. We will have a, an exclusive clip from my brand new podcast about the Democratic Party, um, which is coming out in a couple weeks. We'll talk about that, too. Um, but first, we're going to talk about the news a little bit with our friend John Lovett, because um, you'll also be hearing this on Love It or Leave It. This is a very special Love It or Leave It Pod Save America news topper crossover event. So thinking about what to talk about today, the news has pretty much been the same for two weeks. <laughs> um, but there were a few big picture scene setting stories this week about the Democratic Party that I thought we could dig into a little bit. Um, so both of them ran over the weekend. The New York Times headline is... As Trump consolidates power, Democrats confront a rebellion in their ranks. Sounds scary. Um, and the Washington Post headline is, A bad week for Democrats gives rise to a big problem. Outrage could become an obstacle in midterms. So the lead of the Washington Post one is, uh, and, and the Washington Post was Michael Scherer, and uh, the New York Times was Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns. So the lead of the Washington Post story is, Growing liberal agitation over a pivotal Supreme Court retirement and a simmering crisis about immigrant child separation have left Democratic leaders scrambling to keep the political outrage they'd counted on to fuel midterm election wins from becoming a liability for the party. Now, there's a few things conflated in these stories. There's questions about ideology, there's questions about strategy and tactics, and there's questions about tone and message. Let's start with ideology. Are either of you concerned that the Democratic Party is moving too far to the left on any issues? Dan, we'll start with you. No, I'm not. Love it? <laughs> n- n- no. <laughs> My answer to you is no. Uh, Dan, okay, Dan, you elaborate, and then Love It, you can elaborate. The premise of these stories, they're, they're of a, they're a genre of stories that have existed for as long as Democrats have either been in power or out of power, and they are called Dems in Disarray stories, which means <laughs> we are panicking, things are all screwed up, and... In a sense, they are because we control nothing. So I don't know what they're worried about us blowing, but we control nothing. Ideology-wise, I think two things. One, we have good candidates running races specific to their districts and states. And it's different whether it is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or someone running here in California 10 or Better work in Texas. What is more the, – the line that runs through – the the best campaigns and the best candidates has not been ideology. It has been authenticity. People are running authentic and passionate races that they, the people can feel. It, it doesn't feel like politics as usual. Second, this I think that both of these stories, in, and I think this will be true in all the different categories you raise, particularly ideology, are using a outdated way of thinking about politics. Yeah, Donald Trump ran a entirely anti-ideological campaign to win. He was both conservative and liberal. Uh, he was a populist. He was a corporatist. All the things, and to try to treat this like it is the 1992 healthcare battle doesn't f- understand politics in this day and age. I think you're right on the ideology thing. Like this idea that is so ingrained in, um, and it's not just punditry and reporting. I think there are people within the Democratic Party, strategists, pollsters, ex-politicians, current politicians who also have the same concern. Sometimes they think about this like imaginary Midwestern voter. And this Midwestern voter, when he or she hears the the term Medicare for all or federal jobs guarantee or debt-free college or something like that, suddenly they think, oh, that is way too far to the left on the spectrum for me. And I'm not that far left on the spectrum. And I don't think that comports with any reality that we've seen in the last couple of elections, especially, like you said, Dan, Donald Trump is president. These are ideas (laughs) that poll well. Right. These are ideas that have broad-based appeal. Medicare for all has broad-based appeal. Universal college, universal pre-K, the so-called radical liberal ideas that are that are pulling the party too far to the left. These are simple, elegant political solutions that people can understand and rally behind. And the idea that there's somebody who would vote Democrat but then thinks, oh, that's too much pre-K. <laughs> that's too many kids getting pre-K for me. <laughs> One of the silver linings from, from Donald Trump winning is that it should liberate us from worrying about uh, both electability and how each policy position is going to play in various districts. If you don't like Medicare for All because you think as a policy 
it may not work well. If you think a certain policy costs too much money and you'd rather spend that money on something else, all these things, that's fine. On a substantive level, if you're a candidate running and you don't agree with one policy or the other, totally get that. Do not let yourself get stuck in the trap of worrying about whether a policy is going to pull specifically one, one place or the other, partly because you can message these policies almost any way you want. Voters make choices based on values, based on big goals, based on outcomes. And the ins and outs of the specific policy, like we can worry about that once we're actually in power governing. We've talked a lot about the fact that, oh, you know, people were treat, you know parsing data but then losing the big picture and being too specific. The same happens on policy. There's the same kind of polling and parsing on what policy appeals to who and, and whether or not you should talk about something in this district versus that district. And the idea, if you're looking at politics in 2018 and thinking, oh, this is a surgical operation, <laughs> this is going to be about very specific tweaks. Like, we don't – sledgehammers, not scalpels, right? You need, <laughs> you need to break through and you need to not worry about what the attack is going to be from Donald Trump or what the attack is going to be from your opponent because the idea that there's a system for – analyzing and breaking down your policy views in a sophisticated way and then presenting that analysis to voters is just not real. It's not real. There is no – that policy conversation, maybe it used to happen in D.C. It barely happens there anymore. You need to have something you can say that is big, that you can stand behind, that can make sense to people, and it needs to be able to weather the incredible assault of nonsense to make it in front of somebody's Facebook feed. And parsing whether or not you're for a public option versus Medicare for all, I think, is just a waste of time. I think that's right. I'll say one more thing on this, which is the worst elements of bad democratic consultant and political thinking is always when you try to build your message and policy in anticipation of what the Republican attack is going to be. Mm. And that is exactly what it's happened with Medicare for all, because here you have Essentially, you have Medicare, one of the most popular government programs in history, being expanded to everyone, which is popular. But we don't want to talk about it because we we fear how it can be demagogued by the Republicans and that that's when we'll lose. And there are two problems with that. One, that's just a terrible way of thinking that we're going to censor what we say because we think Republicans – Donald Trump may tweet about it. But it's also deeply naive about – how they will message things in the Donald Trump era, because no matter what the Democrats' position is on abolish ICE or immigration reform, Donald Trump will say that you have sided with the animals of MS-13. You have some freedom to be for what you want to be for, and, and like we, are, we should be liberated in this era to say what we believe in, which will be better off than – because it doesn't matter what we do. Donald Trump will give, accuse us of the worst thing humanly possible. The demagoguing is here. It's been happening for a while. <laughs> They've gone demagoguing crazy. Uh, the idea that like if like Kamala Harris or Kirsten Gillibrand didn't come out for abolishing ICE at some point because that's where the base is pushing them, that Donald Trump would be like, I was going to unleash a series of completely dishonest attacks on these people for siding with ISIS. But now that they've moderated slightly on this position, I'm standing down. <laughs> Donald Trump is standing down. And it's not just Donald Trump. The whole Republican Party has been like that. And they've been like that before Trump. They, they, they went crazy during the Obama era. Everybody, Probably a little bit before. We spent weeks hearing from Republicans on the Hill saying things like, well, I agree that children shouldn't be hostages. I never wanted children to be hostages or pawns in this game of politics. But then they were immediately quite comfortable saying, seems to me like the Democrats are all for open borders and we're for border security. So they, they want the demagoguery. They just want to do it in the more sophisticated D.C. fashion. Right. And I think the other thing to keep in mind is the reason that this moment requires bolder policy solutions. It's not just Trump and the Republicans are in charge now and they've gone crazy and so we can say whatever we want. We're also dealing with rising inequality, stagnant wages. Um, now more people are losing their health care since Trump became president. Like there's an economic transformation that has been happening in this country over the last couple decades that, um, you know, in the, in the eight years of the Obama administration, Obama pulled us out of crisis, pulled us out of a near depression, uh, brought us back to where we were before. But as he acknowledged, too, bef where we were before the Great Recession wasn't good enough. And it has only gotten worse since then. And at some point, we have to think to ourselves, what are the policy solutions that will meet the magnitude of the economic challenge that most people in this country are facing every single day? Barack Obama came in in, in a period of incredible turmoil. And 
he was part of a Democratic primary that actually moved the party to the left, but landed at a place of the Affordable Care Act as a compromised market-based solution with uh, with expansion of Medicaid, et cetera, et cetera, and sort of digging out from this incredible crisis, from incredible crisis. And even in that moment, even when he was seen by some on the left as being too pragmatic, what did the Republicans do? They didn't they didn't come and help. Democrats being pragmatic and seeking out compromise. We did it on taxes. We did it on the debt ceiling. We did it on health care. Spent six months dancing with uh, Chuck Grassley. What happened was we passed a bunch of incredibly important legislation that tried to solve some pretty big problems and do so in a way that required compromise and hard politics. Hard choices? Is that what you're going to say? I was not going to say hard choices. (laughs) I was going to say decision points, actually. (laughs) I was going to refer to them as decision points. But What do the Republicans do? They turn those things into socialism and have spent the last two and a half years trying to undo every single one of them. So if we're going to try to actually solve problems, we need to go big and push this country towards bigger answers to these hard questions because no matter what we do, there is a right wing that will undo anything, no matter how moderated, no matter how practical. Once you start screaming about uh, death panels, about a plan that was modeled after Mitt Romney's health care plan <laughs> yeah. in Massachusetts, you've sort of gone over the ledge there. Yeah, we stole it from the Heritage Foundation. Um, <laughs> so let, let's talk about, the second thing is let's talk about the grassroots leadership divide. We saw Joe Crowley defeated, okay? This is someone who, obviously, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is further to the left than Crowley, but Crowley, one of the more progressive members of Congress, one of the first members of Congress to embrace Medicare for all, he's defeated. Uh, we've heard Democrats criticize Pelosi and Schumer for not fighting hard enough. There's now an expectation among some uh, in the grassroots that we can block Trump's Supreme Court pick when you know we have 49 votes. So it, it is something slightly different than ideology here that is driving sort of a grassroots versus why can't these Democrats in Washington fight hard enough? Dan, what, what do you think is going on there? Like everything else in these not just these two articles, but the general conversation with this, we've conflated a thousand things together, Yeah, right? There are differences between the approach of Democrats in Washington and sort of the, in the grassroots groups, whether it's Swing Left, Indivisible, Moms Demand, um, and everyone else who's out there. And that is usually more in the Senate than the House. And that is usually around Chuck Schumer trying to manage the politics of a bunch of members running in states that Trump won. And I think that that is a very tough challenge for Chuck Schumer. And because he doesn't actually control what Joe Manchin does. Like he could tell Joe Manchin, don't vote vote against whoever Trump puts up to the Supreme Court. And Joe Manchin could say, I'm going to, I'm just going to vote for him. I mean, let's not forget Joe Manchin shot Barack Obama's climate change bill with a gun in a television ad. So he's not going to be our friend on all things. That is different than Joe Crowley's defeat. Hmm. Those are just two different things. They are probably tangentially related, but they are different. I've seen this before. I saw this in 2004 after – or in, two, in the early years of the Bush era when Move On and all these other anti-Iraq war groups sprung up. And I do think that it, to the credit of some in the Democratic establishment, they are being much more welcoming – of swing left and indivisible in these groups than uh, has previously happened. Like there seems to be less of a territorialism and a condescension from Washington. And they're tr- maybe there maybe some of it's co-opting and it's more malicious than it appears, but there seems to be, everyone seems to want to share the state. My basic view is we should get out of the way and let these grassroots groups lead because I don't know of anyone in Washington or ourselves included who have a sterling record in the 2016 election that suggests that we have all the right answers for this. And so we should be aligning ourselves with the groups who are mostly, most closely tied to the grassroots enthusiasm that's fueling our, the electoral victories we've had over the last two years. Dan, I heard a couple people, I saw a couple people on Twitter say, if only Obama had fought harder for Merrick Garland uh, back when he nominated Merrick Garland, we might not be in this mess right now. Could we just go back? Like, was there anything else that Barack Obama or the Senate Democrats could have done to put Merrick Garland on the bench back in uh, 15, 16, whatever it was? From my perspective, no. Mitch McConnell controlled the power. If there was nothing Barack Obama, Harry Reid, who was the leader at the time, could do to make Mitch McConnell put the nomination of Merrick Garland on the floor. That is a power that solely he had. And as long as the Republicans stuck together, nothing could done it. No, no number of speeches could have forced him to do it. Barack Obama couldn't have gone to his house 
and made a compelling case and got Mitch McConnell to do it because Mitch McConnell operates entirely on cold calculating political incentives. And he had a very strong political incentive to not do this. And I think there, it, the critique that I think can be given to the entire party is we maybe we did not we did not do a good enough job of telling people what was at stake mm. if let's so so Garland's not going to get the position while Barack Obama's president so now there's a supreme court seat at stake in the election and i think as has been true for a long time with democrats in questions around judges and supreme court we haven't convinced people why this is so goddamn important and now we are paying for that in the most painful ways possible because it did work for republicans i did a a like a, at a panel before the election uh with se cup who uh the cnn commentator who's a never trumper and i and we had done a bunch of panels together and usually it was mostly people who didn't love trump and we basically got shouted out of the room because no matter how much you didn't like trump these republicans wanted the Supreme Court seat, like that, that became the permission structure to support him against everything else. His uh, inexperience, his racism, his misogyny, everything else was we get the Supreme Court seat, and frankly, abortion was at stake. And we, there's nothing to say that we could not have made that argument better on our side. It wouldn't have got Merrick Garland in the seat in that time period, but it would have maybe helped explain to people why the seat is so important. You know, we don't know what it would look like if. Mitch McConnell was holding up a Supreme Court seat and Hillary Clinton's opponent was Marco Rubio and he was up in the polls by four points, right? We don't know how we would be feeling during that time if if the idea of Trump winning wasn't seen as being more remote than it actually was. I don't believe barring basically turning his presidency into a campaign for that Supreme Court justice seat, right? Having like basically turned it into the biggest and most important issue he was facing to put pressure on other Republicans. And I don't even know if that would have worked. Who knows? But I do think one of the the reasons I think people are bringing it up is because I think we all look back on that period of time and Garland's not getting seated or the idea of Trump making the appointment that, that Mitch McConnell stole went from being a kind of hypothetical we couldn't deal with emotionally to an irreversible reality that night on election day. We weren't, because we thought Hillary Clinton was gonna win, what Mitch McConnell was doing was despicable, but we weren't honest with ourselves about the risks because we weren't honest with ourselves about the risk of Donald Trump becoming president. And that carries over into a whole bunch of different issues. Right. Um, But I do think like, sometimes people equate Democrats not having power with Democrats not fighting hard enough. We just have to remember that as we go forward in the Supreme Court fight. I mean, look, this this is what happened during the whole shutdown over the Dreamers, you know, and we did this on this podcast. We pushed all the Democrats to say that they will not, you know, they're not going to fund deportations of Dreamers and we're going to, you know, they're looking for a compromise here. And they all did it. And then they folded after 24, 48 hours. But even and what a day of courage it was. <laughs> <laughs> but even even if they had held tight for a week, two weeks, I, I think they should have. But I also couldn't say for sure whether Republicans and Donald Trump ever would have backed down from that and said, OK, sure, we will um, we'll do what you want to do. I think, I, we got think our, uh, I think we got our answer when he started separating children from parents. <laughs> exactly. He turned down twenty five exactly. billion for the wall, <laughs> right. refused to help the dreamers and then decided to separate families at the border. I think we knew what Donald Trump was going to do all along. I think part of this is expectations management. This is on Schumer and Pelosi, right? Which is mm. they let people believe, and we let people believe, frankly, uh, that you, we could win that fight when that was highly unlikely. And if it, it just everyone, everyone listening to this knows this, but many of your friends may not, which is if every Democrat votes against this Supreme Court nominee and every Republican votes for it, they will get the seat. And so there is like so there's two things. One, there's letting people know that the fight is going to be really hard and we may lose. But then there was also, and this this is goes to Senate Democrats, understanding the importance of having the fight even if you lose. Right. Because fighting and losing is better than not fighting at all. For and sure. I think that is very important because that is the that is the the ultimate question that I think is so important for Schumer, Pelosi, the entire Democratic Party establishment is, is they have to demonstrate to the people who are in the who marched in the women's march, who marched for our lives, who stormed airports, they have to show to those people that they, our party, and these leaders are a worthy vessel 
for that enthusiasm. And that is going to require having tough fights, even if we lose them. And so doing this calculation of we're probably going to lose, or we're going to, you know, we're going to save our powder for another day is, uh, I think is a huge strategic error. The powder is unlimited. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And also, but, but Dan, I actually think it's more than that. I don't think these fights are just about signaling to the base, signaling to the activists that we're willing to fight. I think you have the fight because the fight and the argument leaves a mark and it leaves a mark on the issues we care about. If we make the Supreme Court battle one that is covered as if there is an actual chance, maybe a small chance, but a chance that we can maybe stop one nominee or maybe st- or stop a more heinous nominee or cause it to be controversial, cause it to be a negative for Republicans, that'll be valuable in the fall. That'll remind people that we just had this big argument over criminalizing abortion, over pre-existing conditions. Um, so I think it has value even to, to the people that are not hardcore Democrats, but are going to start tuning in in the fall anyway. Hi, I'm Aaron Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show, Hysteria, is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. Reclaim your time now that you can listen to four weekly ads-free episodes across Pod Save America and Pod Save the World. There's never been a better time to join Cricket's Friend of the Pod subscription community. The marketing people say that listening ads-free saves you up to two hours of ad listening each month. Imagine the possibilities. You know what you can do with two extra hours a week? You can listen, listen to, two, to more podcasts. Exactly. Ah, two more episodes. That's yeah. two more episodes. Yeah. Get more stuff in your brain. Yeah. Get more stuff in that more brain. More stuff and content in there like, yeah, uh, like you're a foie gras goose. goose. <laughs> Become a member today. Go to crooked.com slash friends now to learn more. Uh, so let's talk about tone and message. Uh, I think all three of us would uh, very much agree that the entire civility debate is uh, obscene. Um, <laughs> but how how about this whole like you know too much outrage, too much anger? Yeah, I, I <laughs> pundits need to decide how hot they want Democratic voters to be. All right, it's like the Goldilocks thing. Like, oh, they're getting a little too angry. That's gonna alienate a group of people in the Midwest I've never met. Oh, they're not angry enough. They're not going to get the votes they need in the parts of New York I've never been to. Like, what, what do you want? You want a passionate, but not too passionate, angry, but not too angry, ready to vote, but not crazy. Like, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want a Democratic base voter to be like? How loud? This loud? A little bit quieter. The thing is, fucking outrageous things are happening all across this country. We should be outraged. Yeah. And this idea that some pundit in Washington knows what the exact right temperature that, that voters want their politicians to be is asinine. They've never known the answer. They certainly don't know it now. People are outraged and they're angry because uh, there's not enough democracy in our democracy. <laughs> you know, they're outraged because people's civil rights and civil liberties are being trampled. And we're a country that says that we believe in civil rights and civil liberties. Like, that's what people are outraged about. But I also think that there's a there, – this is another conflation here too. They're conflating how – activists and people on the ground, people these marches feel with what politicians, how politicians should comport themselves. And I think if 
you are an activist, if you're an organizer, if you're someone who's just paying attention to the politics for the very first time, and you're angry and you're upset, then fucking go be angry and upset because you deserve to be because of what's happened here. But, like, please vote. You, you Channel that anger in a productive way, which is registering people to vote, voting, going to marches, knocking on doors, making phone calls. Do that. Don't just be angry and scream into the Twitter sphere. Um, but as far as politicians go, as far as candidates who are running, um, I haven't really seen an angry, fire-breathing Democratic candidate who makes their whole campaign, his or her whole campaign, about being angry. Like, we've talked about this before. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she definitely had a lot of passion, and she was angry on behalf of uh, the people that she will go on to represent. But she didn't, and she said this herself, she didn't spend most of her campaign talking about Trump. It's a, it's such a funny, like, it goes actually to the same thing about, like, ugh, this Red Hen restaurant is playing right into Trump's hands. They're not in politics. They're just a group of people with a restaurant. It's like these articles are like, Democratic voters may be presenting a problem with Democratic voters in the fall. Like, what, what are you talking about? Well, these are just, these are people. <laughs> They're just people in the world. Some guy showed up to a fucking immigration uh, protest with a gun, pulled a gun on the protesters, um yelled womp womp because he decided to parrot Corey fucking Lewandowski. And our country can't, like, how no, stupid you, does it have to get? Now that's a slogan of white nationalism. But womp also, womp. You didn't hear a bunch of pundits saying, oh, Republicans have to watch themselves because that guy who pulled a gun on the protesters represents the Republican Party. And why would he, why would the that guy give the Democrats such a gift by pulling a, no, you didn't hear anything about that. So why, do you, guys, why do you guys think that is? So what is the, what is the underlying assumptions that lead because these pundits in DC are on the side of the Democrats, but they can't say that <laughs> because they must be unbiased at all times and they must be analytic at all times. And so, what they spend most of their time doing is saying, "Be better, Democrats." <laughs> right. And be, act like, act civilly, act how I think you should act because I am a pundit in Washington. And here's and how I, I have, want you to be. And it's you're my very side. serious things, and I believe in very serious ways of acting and being and, and stuff like that. It's like, right, right. It's like these articles are like, they close the door and now it's just family and let's talk amongst ourselves. Look at those crazy people across the street. You want to be like them? We're not like them, right? We're better than that. Let's keep it, let's keep it close. But of course it's on the internet. It's also <laughs> just, we need a new narrative, right? For like weeks it was the country, you know, everything's falling apart for Trump because for the first time ever, he's facing political accountability for his child separation policy. We, we stuck to the same story for two weeks. So what's the new story? Democrats in disarray. Right. And like you, these stories also swerve out of their lane to make this point. Like I read this Washington Post article that we mentioned here, and the main person quoted in it, is it Chuck Schumer? Is it Nancy Pelosi? Is it an upstart Democrat like Beto O'Rourke or Stacey Abrams? No. It's Michael fucking Moore. I know, man. Like what you quote from a <laughs> appearance on the Bill Maher show. Like there is nothing more disconnected than what is actually going to matter to voters, activists, politicians than what Michael Moore said to Bill Maher. We're looking. We like it is a narrative in search of a story. It is. I know. It is That's foolish. What, it's funny. We've, we spent ten minutes talking about it. Well, everyone out there should not read these stories. If you haven't read them already, ignore them and get back to fucking work because it doesn't matter what a pundit says about about whether your attitude or your outrage or your policy is going is going their is going to affect the election. Their predictions are pointless. They're meaningless and they're usually wrong. We actually control what happens here by turning out to vote because there are more of us than them. So, like it's like it's actually pretty simple, and the rest of this is just filling space until the votes actually start getting cast. That is that is what they do well. I mean, look, the the New York Times story I thought was better because the New York Times story basically concluded like, and this might actually help Democrats win. <laughs> the Washington the Washington Post story was completely absurd. I, yeah, the Michael Moore thing. I was just like, but this this is what's this is of course the whole problem. This is what happens is. A, certain, a small incident, an isolated incident happens like the Red Hen thing or, you know, Michael Moore saying that and people pick it up and that becomes the narrative in D.C. Also, what's the outrageous thing they called for? Peaceful protest. He called for peaceful protest. <laughs> right. What a fucking radical. <laughs> anyway, so I think we're fine. <laughs> Everyone feel good? No. <laughs> I'm, out, I'm outraged. <laughs> I just, it's just like... So let's just like the sequence of events, just so people understand, is uh, a person who won for your votes became president, appointed a stolen Supreme Court seat. They used that Supreme Court seat to steal a bunch more power 
for their constituencies of corporations uh, and the rich. Then the president started separating children from families to send a cruel message to people seeking a better life against terrible, terrible odds. Democrats have responded by being outraged, passionate, and protesting. And the question is, will this hurt us? Seems like a good week for Donald Trump. (laughs) (laughs) One of Trump's best weeks. (laughs) I saw an AP headline that said that. (laughs) Another royal flush from President Trump. Can I ask you guys one more question about this? Do you think any piece of this kind of story about, oh, the Democrats are too outraged, oh, the Democrats are being too pulled too far in a radical direction, do you think there's some part of it that stems from an, an, a belief on the part of some reporters, a quiet belief that there is still this silent majority, that there is still this group of people who will be alienated by this kind of thing? I mean, it, it, that could be possible with the reporters. I don't tend to think of a silent majority as this, this silent majority that, that secretly loves Donald Trump and is going to come out to vote for him. I am always mindful of the fact that there is – that most of the country does not pay attention to politics as closely as all of us <laughs> and most of the people who listen to this podcast. But a good chunk of that country still votes and they are people who don't pay atten- as close attention to the news. They don't consume politics like we do and I always think to myself when they turn on the news, when they finally pay attention closer to the election – what are they going to see from Democratic candidates versus Republican candidates? And I do think that impression that we have on people who, who aren't as aware as we are of all the crazy shit that's going on, they know that bad things are happening. They know that Trump is president. They probably don't like Donald Trump. But they're thinking to themselves, OK, I don't like Donald Trump. He's pretty fucking crazy. He's got the tweets. Everything's good. The country seems like it's going to hell in a handbasket. There's like a lot of shit going on. But um, I don't know. What are the Democrats up to? What are they going to do? And I hope that and what they see is, is Chuck Schumer in front of a gas station. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hope what I hope what they see are candidates who are offering big, bold solutions to the problems that they face in their lives, and they're telling them, "I am going to fight like hell for you and try to make this country a little bit better." Like that's what I hope they see, and I hope they don't see all of these little controversies. So I think to the extent that we have to discipline ourselves to make sure that that message gets out, which I think. Ocasio-Cortez did successfully, which I think Connor Lamb did successfully. People across the spectrum have done that successfully so far, which is why I'm hopeful about November. Yeah, just one like it's it's also actually that's something that's really important too because even if even if you are a democrat who thinks that a abolishing ICE is a bad idea because you're a centrist and you think it's bad politically because you're a centrist, it is still a better idea to just say what you think than it is to spend your days trying to police the words of other Democrats. Yes, that is true. Enough, like, if you have an opportunity to go on background or go on record with a reporter who's asking you about Dems and disarray stories, just don't. Or just at least talk about the issues that you believe in. Talk about your policy positions. Talk about what you think. Don't start. Don't start being a pundit. Leave that to, leave that to the pros like us. <laughs> Dan, do you think the background brigades are going to hear and heed John's message? Do you think that we will finally crush the spirits of the unnamed strategists, of the unnamed strategists roiling who democratic to, yes. politics? Yes, wanted to speak anonymously so he could speak freely about the inter-party divisions. Because <laughs> they're still trying to make money <laughs> I think there are going to be reporters walking around Washington, D.C. all summer with so much time on their hands because there's going to be no one calling them to, t- to talk about why the Democratic Party is fucked up. We'll quote on background for food. That's what their signs will say. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I think the last thing I'll say on this before I let you go is uh, – or let, let you segue us into the next section – is what all of this boils down to is a common belief among reporters, pundits, politicians, consultants, that caution is a better path than courage in campaigns. And there is basically zero history of that being true. Okay. When we come back, um, Dan and I will take your questions. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. 
Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't. (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Um, Thank you to everyone who sent in questions on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, questions all over the place. Um, So I grabbed a few and then, uh, Dan, we can... We can uh, go through as many as we have time for here. Um, Let's first, do it. I didn't read any of the documents that Michael sent me, so I'm flying totally blind here. So you're just getting, my, you're just getting straight hot takes. No prep. This is exciting. Um, this is from Corey. What can Democrats and everyone who is pro-choice start doing at the state level to change abortion laws or continue to protect reproductive rights just in case those battles are lost in the Supreme Court with a new justice? That is a great fucking question, Corey. Step one. If you have a Republican governor, Republican legislature, elect Democrats. Step two, if you have a Democratic governor and Democratic legislature, and they have not uh, passed laws that enshrine uh, women's reproductive freedom, pressure them to do so ASAP. Uh, But this ultimately comes down to winning as as many seats at the state level in governor's mansions as as humanly possible. I don't think there's ever been a time when – Electing Democrats on a state level, on a local level, especially state legislatures and uh, governorships, has been more important than it is right now. And look, we all learned this lesson the hard way in 2010 when Democrats got wiped out, not just in Congress, but we lost a lot of statehouse seats. And what happened then was, of course, uh, you know, redistricting and the census happened in 2011. And because Republicans had huge majorities in Congress, they got to redraw all the lines. And, um, and you know, now we have uh, a, way too many Republican governorships. So now we're going to have another redistricting year, another census year in 2021. We have a Supreme Court that could have a conservative majority that could undermine rights and turn back laws and progress in all kinds of states. So to have a Democratic bulwark in the states against what's happening at the federal level. I mean, I saw a couple of Republicans being like, oh, it's interesting that Democrats have suddenly found a new love for federalism. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I do. Um, we, we have to, and we haven't for a long time, we have to pay attention to not just Congress, not just flipping Congress, but to every single seat that is up, especially seats in states right now. And there's a lot of, I mean, we've talked about how the Senate map is pretty hard for us, but the map for the governor's races is actually pretty ripe to, for Democrats to pick up a lot of governorships, right? Yeah, it's great. I mean, it, it, there are a lot of seats up. There are a lot of seats in states that were either very close in the 2016 election or states that Democrats won. So the opportunities are there. We just have to actually devote resources, energy, and focus to it. Um, this is from Nikki on Facebook. This is a tough one, Dan. How do you feel about Democrats running on the message of increasing the court size if they regain power in 2020? People like Ian Samuel think pack the courts should be on the same level as abolish ICE. I think (laughs) if I was being devious, I would say don't run on packing the courts. 
run on something else, win, and then pack the courts. <laughs> like, that seems like a better plan. <laughs> That's what the Republicans would do. <laughs> now, I look, I don't I I think we need to take some pretty drastic steps as Democrats to try to find better balance between the majority like we have a majority of voters. We have our positions have majority appeal. Yet the structures of power massively disadvantage us, whether it's the makeup of the Senate, whether it is redistricting and everything else. And so we need to take some drastic steps. I have said this before. I was I will say it again. If I if the Democrats stumble into control of the House, Senate and presidency in my in the in the near term or even in my lifetime, the first thing I would do is I would give statehood to D.C., and the second thing I would do yeah, would Rico. be if the people of Puerto Rico so desired to become uh, a, a state, which there is, uh, there have been uh, different. That's they that's that should be their call, not ours. But if they were to so choose that, I would give Puerto Rico statehood because I can promise you one fucking thing. So let's just take D.C. for a second. If Washington D.C. was a nine voted for Donald Trump like 90 to 10 or whatever the numbers were in DC, but it's the most, dem- one of the most democratic places in the entire country. If it was that Republican, it would, Do- Mitch McConnell, Donald Trump and Paul Ryan would have made a state last week. It would have taken those two Senate seats. So I think that is one thing we can do that would help restore balance. I am, I don't know. I think that it is, it may be a race to the bottom of, we're just going to end up with a thousand Supreme court justices because every time someone gets control of government, that was add more until they get the majority. And I don't know that that's the best thing in the long run for governance in this country. Yeah. I'm not worried about it because I'm worried about like protecting norms and institutions, though I do think institutions and norms are important. Um, but I'm worried, like we should think about, we should think hard about steps where, if Republicans are in power again and they do the same thing, it could hurt us in a big way. Like tomorrow, what would we do if Donald Trump said, oh, I have a Republican House and a Republican Senate and I'm going to pass a bill right now to give me the power to add two or three more Supreme Court justices and I'm going to nominate a bunch of people who are in their 40s. That'd be pretty fucking scary. Um, I think I think we absolutely need a revenge for Merrick Garland's seat. They stole a Supreme Court seat. The Republicans stole a Supreme Court seat. And we should not rest until we get it back. What do you think <laughs> Whichever... that should be? I mean, I think, first of all, if Democrats retake the Senate and, um, like, you know, Donald Trump may or may not get this uh, nominee through. Uh, if Democrats retake the Senate, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's 85, Stephen Breyer's 80, 81, and then Clarence Thomas is the next oldest at 71, 72. Um, I think that he gets no more Supreme Court justices no matter if all three of them retire um until or as elizabeth warren told us when we asked her this question uh at least then force him to actually put up a moderate supreme court justice um but otherwise if he puts up another gorsuch if he puts up three more gorsuches then the democrats should absolutely say no we're keeping the seat open we are keeping the seat open until the presidential election in 2020 and i think they'd be totally justified in doing that um, I might go. I might go one step further. Mm-hmm. I might also say no. No appeals court judges. Oh yeah, I think that's that's probably fair too. I mean, Mitch McConnell has been so devious um, from Merrick Garland on. Then yeah, I, I think that's totally fair. But I do think that's I think packing the court what they did to Obama's last two years. Right. That's right. Um, but I do think you're right. Like packing the court, sort of, it does start this arms race where suddenly the judiciary stops becoming a check on the legislative branch branch and uh, the executive branch. And now the judiciary is just whoever's in power adds more justices so they can get their way. And it just goes back and forth between Democrats and Republicans. And by the way, I don't know that I necessarily feel this about getting rid of the filibuster if Democrats take back the Senate and take the presidency, because that's a situation where the makeup of the Senate, the fact that the Senate gives uh, Two, two senators to the state of Wyoming and two senators to the state of California and the way that the demographic um, coalitions in this country have shaken out and geographical distribution of voters in this country have shaken out, um, Democrats are much more – have a much bigger advantage of a 51-vote majority than – uh, Republicans will have of a 51 vote majority. You know what I'm saying? Like Republicans are always going to have an advantage in the U.S. Senate because of the way the population is distributed in this country right now. They always will. So 
for Democrats, the only way to even the field, even the playing field in the Senate is going to be ultimately to get rid of the filibuster so there's no 60-vote margin. I do think that Democrats should think about doing that. I, I agree. I also think, just podcast listeners, there are what, 2 million of you out there, theoretically? And if 10% of you move to Wyoming, we have two more senators. 5% move you, we probably have two more senators. Like, housing prices are expensive yeah. on the coasts. Given, given the state of the planet these days with Scott Prode in charge, the coast may be getting smaller. If you're, if you're so into it, move to a, a low-population Republican state, register as a Democrat, run for office if you want, and we'll get more Senate seats. Just a thought. But you know what's easier than moving a whole bunch of people to Wyoming? The next de- Democratic Senate leader just saying, buy filibuster. <laughs> and, let's do both. And all the, Yeah, no, I'll, um, both is great, too. Yeah, no, okay, let's, I'll, I'll take the both option. Um, all right. Um, from Kaylee on Twitter, oh, this is sort of a, a good segue. If there's a Democratic trifecta come 2021, what is the new thing you'd like to see them try to do? Election reform, codifying norms into laws, paid family leave, weed. <laughs> Those are all Kaylee's different options. Um, what do you think, Dan? What's, what's first on the agenda? Statehood for D.C., two Senate seats. And it's the fucking right thing to do because people of D.C. deserve to have representation because the, the government has been fucking with them for a long time. And so that's one. Two, I think... I mean, the list is so long. Like, we should do all the things. I would probably, if I could pick, it's basically, is this the question of if you could do one thing with that power, what would it be? Is that, um, is, yeah, let's go there. That that's that's the a fun exercise. I don't even know if that was your question, but that's a cool one to do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would do, I, I would do Medicare for all. That's what I would do. Yeah. I know. Maybe we're just. You know, we uh, we're gluttons for punishment. We went through Obamacare <laughs> once before, but I just I I agree with you. I care a lot about healthcare, and I think it is. I mean, there is a good argument to be made that it is one of the biggest costs that families face. That it is one of the biggest costs that this entire country faces. Um, that you know, as much as Obamacare did to ensure twenty million people who didn't have health insurance before, um, partly because of Republican sabotage. Uh, it did not do enough to bring down the cost of healthcare. A public option would have helped do that. And I think if we do not figure out how to bring down the cost of healthcare in this country, we are not just going to have healthcare problems. We're going to have major, major economic problems. Um, and so I do think that's a good one. I also think like any kind of shoring up, and I know that states have a lot of power in this area too, but anything we can do on the federal level to shore up voting rights, um, because that's the kind of thing, that's the kind of measure that next time Democrats aren't in power, if we can sort of codify a lot of voting rights legislation and voting rights protections into law, um, then we're going to be in better shape than we're in right now, where we see Republicans sort of turning back voting rights, um, you know, in, in a ton of different states. You know what? I rescind mine. I mean, we should also do Medicare for all, but we should do uh, national vote by mail, 30 days. Yeah. We should do it like we do in California and, or like they do in and Oregon. What about Election Day as a holiday? I do that too. Although many people – I've made that point on Twitter and people – in actually a fairly reasoned, nice way, which made this a unique Twitter experience, um, <laughs> made the point to me that that is true. That will really help you if you're like a salaried worker, but service workers are still have to work on holidays. And so the people you're trying to help, you're not – like the world doesn't shut down, right? Like restaurants are open, hospitals right. are open. And so for a large segment of the population, people would maybe the hardest to vote for, you're, you, you're not helping them. So you should do – you. I think you should make it a holiday, but then you should also do a month of vote by mail um, so that people have as many opportunities as possible. Like the idea – it shouldn't be election day in this country. It should be election month. Yeah. I think that's – I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, I should say that uh, – our producer Michael Martinez, DC former DC resident here, uh, was pumping his fist in the air when you talked about DC statehood. So Michael is very much on board with that one. <laughs> um, Amy on Twitter asks us, um, "How the hell do I cope with all this? How do you cope? Is no one coping, and we're all just falling apart inside?" <laughs> sure, that wasn't love it. <laughs> um, I. It's a very existential question. Like, 
if none of us are coping, do we even know it? Like, do we think we're coping and we're not actually coping? I don't know. Uh, (laughs) Like, I I, guess I'd say a couple things about this. One, doing something is better, feels better than sitting at home and lamenting the state of the country and sadness. And so, Mm -hmm. but if that is canvassing, if that is going to a march, if that's registering voters, if that is something my sister-in-law does, which is sends postcards to voters, uh, which is is, is a really neat program for people who may not be able to, who may, because of jobs or childcare, whatever else may not be able to get out uh, and go canvassing all the time. Uh, So I think that's one thing. And then Lovett makes this point a lot, but is you don't have to live in the shit 24 seven. Right. Turn some turn something else on. Watch the World Cup. Watch a television show. Binge Netflix. Like take a break. Like we are in a marathon here. Like in 2018 is not the end of the marathon. It is like not even the halfway point. We have a long way to go to dig ourselves out of this. And so take a break every once in a while. Don't you don't like you are not being a bad person if you decide you just want to fire fire up the TV and turn on Gilmore Girls and watch it for for a few hours. Like you're not. You're not shirking your duty as an American citizen disturbed about the state of the country if you take a break for a second. But after you recharge your batteries, get back out there and start trying to take our country back. Yeah. I mean, look, I I suffer from an addiction to Twitter. <laughs> That's my problem. Um, I also, you know, my job is to pay attention to the news. This is yours. Um, but if I didn't have that <laughs> addiction to the news, I and I and sometimes I try myself. It is good to shut off Twitter, to shut off the news, to, I mean, love it would kill us if we're saying this because it's like telling people not to to tune into our content here. But I think once in a while, it's good to take a break from all this shit and to talk to your family and talk to your friends and go enjoy something. And um, because things are really bad right now and Donald Trump has done some horrible things and the Republican Party has done some horrible things and some horrible things have been with us before Donald Trump and before the Republican Party. Uh, They were with us during the Obama administration. They've been with us for decades. And it's also true that this country has been through worse than what it is going through right now. There was a civil war in this country through World War II. Civil rights was an incredibly difficult period. Look at the late 1960s. Um, So there were worse times in this country before. And I think, like you, you're, you're absolutely right that it is a marathon. And you know, I was going to the march on Saturday was such a refresh. It's always such a refreshing thing because a uh, because there's so many people, your cell, your phone doesn't work as well, and so you can't actually read the news as well. And you're just there with people, and you're talking to people, and you feel this really positive energy. And no matter what you think before the march, whether you're like, oh, I got to wake up early, I'm going to go to this march, or no crowd it's going to be, when you get there. It's just – it's completely different. It changes you and you feel better and that feeling usually lasts the whole weekend uh, until Monday comes and you open up Twitter and Donald Trump's doing something fucking crazy. Um, <laughs> but it is, it is important to give yourself those breaks. Um, uh, Dan, this is from Spencer on Instagram. This is for you. Could you talk about the lack of parody in the NBA? we have had lack of parity in the nba for as long as i've watched the nba we've had a small handful of franchises whose franchises who always win and some franchises who never win i think well i'm a sixers fan i am sad that lebron has decided to take his talents to your town of la i know everyone says all the cool kids are moving to la i'm a big lakers fan now look at that I don't know what this is going to mean for you uh, Celtics fans who now have to watch the Lakers with LeBron. But I think we will revert to the norms again. People are very upset because the Golden State Warriors, who are my second team, and for anyone who yells at me about having a second team, uh, here's what I'd say to you. If your coach would appear on Pod Save America and then wear his merch to multiple press conferences, including during the NBA playoffs, then I would consider supporting your your other team as well. But they haven't done that, so <laughs> I'm not with the Sixers. I'm with Steve Kerr and the Warriors, and I'm totally fine with that. Open invitation. Uh, they're signing OB, OB, Greg Popovich, Brett Brown, Luke Walton. All of you are invited to a Pod Save America crooked conversation and experience, and I will bring a fucking duffel bag of merch that you can wear all the time. Um, but it's going to still, it's NBA season was amazing last season. It's going to be amazing next season. And, uh, our friend Chase Serrano pointed out on Twitter that if the only thing you care about in the NBA is who wins at the end of the season, then you're missing all the amazing things that are happening. So it'll be another great year. Even if the Warriors will probably win again. 
Yeah, I will. Um, since it's the Lakers, I'm uh, I'm not having a second second team here. But um, you know, good for LA, good for LeBron, good for LA. Um, okay. Uh, speaking of existential questions, Katie on Twitter asks, "Why does John Lovett go to so many escape rooms?" <laughs> I don't know, can Katie. You, can you I don't know. That question for him again. It's an existential question. I think it's about more than just escape rooms. Um. All right, and our uh, our last question from Hannah on Instagram: When is John's podcast on the Democratic Party coming out? Great question. Um, on Monday, July 9th, we are dropping the teaser, uh, and you can subscribe to my new podcast called The Wilderness. Uh, I decided to announce the name today because why not? Um, it's a oh, that's exciting. Yeah, and yeah, then, you so know, you know it was the Monday, July 9th, so like just a few days from now. Yes. Uh, it is a. Have you? Are you at all concerned that we're recording this podcast on July third? It will come out on July fifth, and according to Alex Jones, the Democrats are starting the civil war on July fourth. Uh, I took that into account. I have a couple interviews about the Democrats uh, starting a civil war, so no worries about that. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, so it, it is a it is a fifteen chapter story. It's a documentary style podcast about a party that is finding its way out of the wilderness. So we are all in the wilderness right now, but while we're here, there's a lot of new ideas, there's a lot of new energy, there's a lot of new planning, a lot of new, lot of new candidates, and it is about sort of tracking our way out of the wilderness. Um, so the teaser drops on July 9th. It, uh, on that day, we will also have the uh, chapter titles, the descriptions of each chapter, what we're covering in each chapter, um, and I will also release the list of guests who I interviewed for this podcast, of which you are one, Dan. Um, Dan talked to me for the media episode. And, um, and then on Monday, July 16th, um, we are releasing the first four episodes at once, the first four chapters of The Wilderness. Uh, so they will be out on Monday, July 16th, and then we will release one every Monday after that. Um, I'm very excited. I'm very excited this is finally, uh, this is finally happening now. Um, and I am very, I'm very excited for this. It's going to be, it's a really amazing project, and I'm very much looking forward to it. Yeah, and I'll and I'll say for you know as tough as uh, these last couple of weeks have been, um, every time I go back to work on the wilderness and to do all the editing and post production, all that kind of stuff, I'm always very hopeful because I would say what I learned from talking to people from all kinds of different backgrounds and views and beliefs is like, yeah, we're in some shit, but uh, there's a lot more unity in the Democratic Party uh, than you might think from looking on Twitter and cable. Uh, And there's a lot of people who were on various sides of debates that we've had in the party over in recent years. And they're sort of all coalescing around um, a certain set of policies, a certain agenda, a certain message, a certain idea for tone. And uh, that is very hopeful. So... um, Check it out. Monday, July 9th is the teaser, and uh, and on July 16th, um, we will have the first couple episodes of The Wilderness. And today, we are going to, um, after we say goodbye, we're going to have an excerpt from um, one of the episodes. This is the episode, this is episode three, chapter three. It's about the 2016 election, and I had a conversation with Rebecca Traster um, about sort of why the fight is worth it, even though, you know, even though 2016 went horribly. Um, we, we talked about sort of the night before the election and, um, and basically talked about the future of the party and, and, and what's possible. So um, you can hear that. That will play right after we're, uh, we're done chatting. And other than that, everyone, I hope you had a great fourth and hope you have a great weekend. And, you know, we'll all be back next week. Yeah. Talk to everyone next week. Happy fourth. I remember when we were sitting down to work on the second inaugural, you know, Obama, as usual, came up with the whole idea. He was like, you know, we should start with the first line of the declaration because my belief is that the you could write the entire history of the United States and the entire story of America is us, is each generation trying to make that first line of the declaration 
real because it wasn't when it was written, but the promise was always in the founding. And the idea is that each, each generation tries to do it. Um, you know, those were back in the hopeful days right, <laughs> right, before Trump, right. but still, you well, know, but, but it's because, and this is the thing, this is, this is the bigger story is that he was right to have that hope. I mean, I do sometimes think that he believed we were closer to it than we were, obviously. Right, right. right. <laughs> but he was right to have that hope because it is possible. It is possible. But the fact that it's possible is precisely what has provoked the punishing pushback that we're living through right now. It's the fact that it's within our grasp to make another huge set of steps toward inclusion and equality and toward the promises, the unfulfilled promises of our founding. It's because we're on the brink of getting to that next place that we are being hit so hard. That's exactly what we're in the midst of right now. And it's not because it's impossible to get to that next step. It's because it's really possible.